Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. Oh, hey. Okay. Can I tell you a secret at the top of the show? Because I'm going to. Okay. So for the last year and a half, I've been working in semi-secret on a Netflix show for Higher Ground, which is a production company owned by Michelle and Barack Obama. And the show I've been working on is called Ada Twist Scientist, and it's an animated show. It's for kids. It's about a girl who's a young scientist and her friends, Iggy and Rosie, and all these experiments they do. And I've been a consultant on it, having to work on it in secret for a long time and helping figure out the science of the experiments they do and some plot lines and suggesting real life science. A lot of them I know through ologies, you know them also, to interview at the end of each episode. And the entire team was just the best. And I'm so proud of the show. We worked so hard on it for so long. And it premieres today, today, September 28th on Netflix. And I'm only telling you this because the creators of the show and the showrunner and the whole team just work so hard. And I just, I hope you like it. Anyway, it is to a scientist. It's on Netflix now. Okay. On to the ology show. It's me. It's your uncle who travels with a scented candle because he gets homesick on work trips. It's Allie Ward back with a crackling, smoking hot episode of Ologies. It's all about fire and campfires and embers, heat, warmth. And when did your ancestors, the ones whose names you're never going to know, the relatives billions of us have in common, when did they figure out how to use fire and why and where did it lead us? So there's a lab at Yale University dedicated to researching this hazy history of what our species has been through. And this ologist is the director of that lab. He's worked on four continents, published papers spanning half a million years of human history. He got his bachelor's studying physics and anthropology at Grinnell College in Iowa, got his master's and PhD in anthropology from the University of Minnesota, and at the Yale Pyrotechnology Lab, also called Y-Pyro. He and his colleagues study how technology and history can be figured out by tracing our control of heat. But before we light the fuse, let's thank the folks who support at patreon.com slash ologies. You can join them for a dollar a month and submit questions to the ologist before we record. Thank you to everyone who rates and subscribes and reviews. I read them all. Here's a little proof. Still smoking. Lacey Freeman's review this week said, no flim flam, it's a Freeman fave. As a fellow gross person who likes gross things, please never stop this podcast or cussing. Lacey, you get me. Okay, pyrotechnology, let's do it. Gather round, you naked AP babies, and listen to tales about sharp rocks Hairy jello, sooty caves, glowing coals, iron sparks, burnt feet, wolf skulls, fluffy fungus, stomping Oprah, molten metal, some disaster movie trivia, ember tending, and more with anthropologist and pyrotechnologist Dr. Ellery Fromm.
Okay. First off, can I get you to pronounce your first and last name and tell me the pronouns you use? Sure. My name is Ellery Fromm, and my pronouns are he, him. That's a great name, by the way, Ellery Fromm. I, I never have, you know, people don't Google it and end up with the wrong Ellery Fromm. <laughs> you have SEO optimization down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never was able to, like, find, like, pencils or nameplates or anything <laughs> like that as a kid. Is it a, is it a historical name? No. I, I mean, well... I mean, it, you'll see a lot of like British, like William Ellery Channing and William Ellery, but my parents literally just found it in a book. Oh, uh, thought it was good. Have you read the book? Well, I mean, there's, there's, so there's Ellery Queen, the nom de plume for uh, mystery writers. And I, I realized just recently that after constantly hearing about, are you named for Ellery Queen? Um, I've never actually read <laughs> any, any of the books, any of the, I think they were like radio mysteries, anything. I've never read a thing of it. I, I think I just kind of resented it as a kid. Okay. I looked up this author, Ellery Queen, and it turns out it was a nom de plume of two writers, cousins who worked on a team under one name. They also went by Barnaby Ross and they staged public debates as Ellery Queen and Barnaby Ross, two fictitious people. And they kept their faces covered to keep their fake identities a secret, which is so much cooler than my childhood dream of publishing sappy books under the pseudonym Dixon Ticonderoga. Anyway, this Ellery is not a fiction writer. He's a fact finder. I feel like as a scientist, you're sort of a detective anyway, right? I, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, we, we constantly liken ourselves as, as like Sherlock Holmes, uh -huh. uh, I would think, is just extracting every bit of data out. But the, the alternative, though, is that is that Sherlock Holmes like always found the bad guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, well, it's probably this. Um, it depends. It, it depends. depends on the, yeah, a lot of scientists say that their answer for a lot of things starts with, it depends, which yes. is true. But how long have you been interested in way, way, way back history, paleo history. I think I was as a kid I was I was interested, especially in like astronomy being a very deep field. And doing my PhD work, I was I was focusing more on on the Bronze Age, so like five thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I was doing that research in Syria and this was about the time the, the Syrian civil war broke out and so all archaeology there just stopped. Mm -hmm. But I had colleagues who were working in, in the Caucasus in, in what we call the Paleolithic. And they said, you, you should come here. You'll, you'll love it. And obviously that stuck. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of caught the, caught the bug late, maybe. And your background initially was in physics, right? Yeah, so I took a lot of both physics and anthropology courses in college. I couldn't make the double major work. There were too many labs. <laughs> but I, I basically like grew up in a physics department. So my dad is still a technician in a, in a science building uh, at a liberal arts college in, in Wisconsin. And so I literally grew up in a physics department, like literally riding my big wheel up and down the hallways. <laughs> and being called in when they needed a, a small person for demos in the lecture <laughs> hall and stuff like that. Uh, so like right, riding the uh, fire extinguisher propelled tricycle uh, was, my, <laughs> was my specialty. And then you ended up studying fire. That's actually kind yeah, of perfect. Yeah. So I mean, it was play. And when I started taking a lot of anthropology and archaeology in college while doing a physics major, eventually there was just kind of stumbled across the blend 
between the two. And I don't know if this creeps you guys out, but I have known about your lab and your work for years and have always wanted to do a pyrotechnology episode. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm sure you have to explain to people it is not the study of fireworks and that black cats. And yeah, like that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely the, the question that uh, I get asked all the time. So you study ancient fireworks and, and, <laughs> and like, no, but that would be within our purview um, if we were so inclined. So the general idea with pyrotechnology is it's a, a way of kind of reframing human technology, but you can also lump a lot of human behavior and even human evolution into the control of fire mm-hmm. and not just controlling fire, but but greater and greater control and achieving higher and higher temperatures. And so all the way back to, you know, depending on which, which sites you're so inclined to believe, you could be talking about a million years ago, all the way up through the 20th century, when really only with the advent of plastics. Plastics. Do Ooh. we start getting technology that, that doesn't depend on, on heat? You know, if you're talking about progressing through ceramics and glass and metals um, and new metals. It was, it was all about, about getting hotter forges and controlling how you're altering materials for, for longer and longer. And only when you start coming up with things like Bakelite mm-hmm. and, and causing plastic polymers to form that suddenly you get a, a trend in technology that now it's about more like you know, how you control structures, so 3D printing and nanotechnology and stuff like that. But for most of human history, we were dependent on what temperatures we could attain and how precisely we could control them and for how long we could keep those those temperatures going. Okay, quick side note. The invention of the first polymer plastic, Bakelite, dates back to the early 1900s. And it was also called artificial amber or polyoxybenzyl methyl and glycolanhydride for short. And from a physics perspective, can we back up and can you explain to me what fire is? Is that a, is that too hard a question? No, 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 it's not. So fire is is a chemical reaction. I think it's easier to even think about a spark. And so you might think about a spark being made from from flint striking a piece of steel whether it's kind of an old old fashioned fire starting kit or on a flintlock gun flintlock guns in case you didn't know came along in the 1600s and relied on a chip of flint striking steel to ignite gunpowder and send a bullet flying with the explosion so imagine revolutionary war guns or something a pirate would have tucked into their smelly pants that spark that's also fire technology, baby. So there's when those those two substances that that flint stone hits the the iron rich steel, there's a spark. There's mm-hmm. light, there's something that can cause an ignition. That little particle that you see glowing is basically just a tiny little bit of iron atoms that have been scraped off that steel and are now oxidizing right away. Mm, okay. And that is is what a spark is. It's that chemical reaction of oxidation extremely quick. And so that's on a larger scale that's a lot of what's happening with fire. It's it's a chemical reaction mm-hmm. that is producing 
energy and gases and you get the heat out of it, you get the light out of it as, as part of those, those reactions. But in, in the simplest form, yeah, that, that's what it is. It's a chemical reaction. What you typically associate with, with fire are those, those photons of light and, and infrared making something hot. But the chemical reaction, that particular substance undergoing this transformation to, to ash, perhaps, is the, the byproducts of that chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. But the fire itself is that, you know, it's, it's almost a process rather than, than a thing. And it occurs in nature, obviously, mm-hmm. with lightning, with what, lava catching things on fire? How else does it occur in nature before we as a species understood how to create it versus control it? Yeah, I mean, you make an important distinction there between fire users and fire producers, right? So Mm -hmm. that we were probably able to capture fire from like a a natural lightning strike or like you were saying, from something burning ahead of a lava flow. To the point of being able to to create it on demand is is an important distinction. And of course, that's the one of the the biggest challenges then to, to try and investigate in the past is distinguishing was there fire, but we're not convinced this was is human related? It's it's just evidence of perhaps a forest fire, or that there might have been sediments that were that were heated on the ground, but you know, there was a lava flow right nearby and, mm-hmm. and that's what reheated it. So yeah, I would I would say you 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 captured a lot of it. Certainly lightning is I think what what everyone kind of most associates with with it. There's even some pictures of kind of early paleo art from like the 50s of Neanderthals using fire. They've started a fire. And, and to, to make sure they emphasized that this was related to a lightning strike, the, the paleo artist in the background has this rainbow. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you get this juxtaposed, you know, very brutish looking interpretation, very 50s interpretation of Neanderthals mm-hmm. using fire, but then this lovely rainbow in the background, which I think is just <laughs> this fantastic juxtaposition. And if we're talking about kind of vintage timelines and confusion, could you put on your anthropologist hat? I don't know if you have a literal one, if it's necessary or not, but can you give us a quick timeline of when, as a species, we did what shit? Like, when did we start making fires? When did we start using tools and stuff? I mean, just a quick timeline. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anthropologists wear scarves. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Duly noted. Perfect. But, but yes, yeah, so so the earliest essentially stone tools are are what we have when we're talking about what the earliest kind of archaeology is. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with the it depends. There's debate. Mm-hmm. The most recent kind of oldest site is is what's called Lamekwi Three in what's now Kenya, and it's dated to a little more than three million years ago. Ooh. that's a bit controversial. But even if you are more conservative and go to the next oldest site, you're still talking at about 2.6 million years ago, and that's in, wow. in Ethiopia. So these are very simple stone tools, very simple in that you're talking about a flake, a chunk has been knocked off of a larger stone, either on purpose or accidentally at first. But those are the oldest stone tools. There are similarly old kind of cut marks on bone as well and kind of that, you know, 
more than a million-ish um, years. So that's how long we've been using stone tools. Wow. Potentially 3 million plus years. And if it is 3 million plus years, we're talking about pre-genus homo, pre mm-hmm. that broad umbrella of humanity. So we as a peoplehood homo date back roughly two and a half million years before this one ape, the grandpapa of taxonomy, Carl Linnaeus, coined the genus Homo in 1758. So making us all one big posse. And I guess giving all the other apes genus envy. That's so I should erase that. Jump ahead to what are some of the oldest indicators of fire use. Again, we're still looking in Africa. So there's Wonderwork Cave in uh, South Africa that has some evidence for the presence of fire associated with early humans at about 1 million years ago. Oh, wow. By this time, stone tools are getting a little little more advanced, but they're, they're still just kind of like pebbles with a few sharp edges on and chopping. When you get to the next kind of threshold of when you start to get some agreement about where and when fire is is more common. You're talking about maybe half a million to two or 300,000 years, again, depending on um, kind of which side of the, the debate you're on. And by that time, we're talking about, if we're talking 300,000 years ago, we're talking about the human ancestor called Homo erectus and almost transitioning in places like Europe into early Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so real quick, Neanderthals were human. They're the same homo genus, but a different species. And they were shorter and stockier. And they diverged from sapiens at least half a million years ago. And there's evidence that they could create fire 200,000 years ago. They were also super smart. And they made art and jewelry. And we interbred with them a bunch, which means they probably smelled okay and were dope to chill with. And then you start getting advances continuing innovations in how the stone is being used to make tools. There are wood tools. Preservation is really bad for wood, you might imagine. Mm-hmm. There are some some spears that are in that time frame of tens of thousands of years old that have been preserved in, in Germany because they were trapped in like oil sands. Mm-hmm. So then we start to get modern humans on the scene about in Eurasia, there are already modern humans in in Africa at this time, but at about that 40,000 years ago, you start to get the replacement of, or integration, or whichever way you want to interpret it, the replacement of Neanderthals by by modern humans, by us. Mm -hmm. And then spreading throughout the the rest of, of Eurasia. And we don't get things like ceramics, until, and, and if we think about ceramics, if we think about pots, mm-hmm. that is not until what we call the Neolithic. It's part of the Holocene. So we're talking about after the last ice age. And that's only within the last, say, 10,000 years. So if you wish that you had a cheat sheet of the different scene eras, allow me to be that crib note cradled in your sweaty palm. So the Holocene started about 11,000 years ago with a glacial retreat that left behind all these cute little lakes in Minnesota. And in the Holocene, humans started farming things and building stuff. So then what is the Anthropocene? Well, it's a debated term introduced in the early aughts, right around the time Gwen Stefani was gluing rhinestones to her face. 
And the Anthropocene denotes that this is the time of humanity as our species is having an impact on the planet and the geological record, what with things like mass extinctions and atom bombs and game shows and a bunch of space toilets now orbiting the galaxy, you know, Chernobyl, things like that that stick around in the record. But yes, the Holocene started 11,650 years ago, give or take, which in Earth terms is like yesterday. So when you're talking about ceramics and everything that's followed, mm-hmm. <laughs> ceramic, farming, glass, metal, all this sort of stuff, you're talking about no more than 10,000 years ago. Ooh, so recent. Yeah, We're oh, pretty yeah, new yeah. on the scene. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But then these things build too. Because, and this is where, again, kind of the, the integration of, of control of heat becomes interesting because you can't say, smelt metals without having ceramics to pour them into. Ah, haha. They're also, they're also integrated as well. You, you kind of can't get one without the other. And so they all kind of engage like you know, on, on a gear that you need, you need kind of each threshold to, to happen. Yeah, I mean, I imagine if I were just born a baby in a forest somewhere, there is no way I would be able to, A, take care of myself or figure out any of this. So we're always building on whatever we were left from the last generation, right? Yeah. I mean, it, there's even a line in um, one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies where the, the main human character finds himself on a primitive planet that doesn't have technology. And he thinks like, I am going to rule them like a god. I, <laughs> I, I am, you know, modern human knower of technology that Arthur realized he could, he could barely make himself toast, let alone a yeah. toaster. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, exactly. You, you innovate within kind of the, the zeitgeist around you and, and build up on, on what, what knowledge has existed before. Humans are also precocious too, and, and we kind of tinker, and, and, and that's how there can be multiple places that something like farming can be invented around the world. What exactly do they call that when something's concurrent like that? I forget, there's a word uh, yeah. for it. Okay, so I looked it up, and this phenomenon of concurrent ideation manifests in a sort of cinematic convergent evolution called twin films. So think Armageddon and Deep Impact. Volcano and Dante's Peak, Friends with Benefits and No Strings Attached, The Addams Family and the Monsters, and dueling documentaries about bougie island shit shows, which is a whole different field of fire festival research. There's like a word for it when it comes to like two screenplays being made at the same time. We're twins. That's right. It's just sort of like by happenstance. By exactly. Time. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you get that so that, you know, uh, farming can be in, in, invented in different places or, or pottery can be invented in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always the challenge, too, and where we have to start worrying about how well um, we know the ages of sites to start answering questions like was the use of fire invented in one place, and then it spread from there, the knowledge of it, not the fire. Or were there multiple inventions throughout time that, that, that really people just kind of figured this out, and there were kind mm-hmm. of multiple nuclei where, where these sorts of innovations happened? Well, how do you think our ancestors first started to create the fire rather than just control it? Do we think it was just a flint and steel or was it rubbing two sticks together vigorously? Like, when I watch Naked and Afraid... We need to collect a whole lot of wood in a hurry. We cannot lose this fire, or we're going to be right back where we started. 
I'm like, (laughs) how did people figure this out a million years ago? Yeah. So that again is a fantastic question. And it's, it's hard to have the material evidence that as archaeologists, we like to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the oldest fire starting kits we have is again, for most of the times we're talking about fairly recent, but Otzi the Iceman. So the Bronze Age man who had fell into a glacier in the Alps and then was discovered in the 90s. He had a fire starting kit Ooh. on him. And so along with lots of other accoutrement, but he he had a piece of pyrite, so iron sulfide. So something that, again, could you could free an, an iron atom from and mm-hmm. get a spark. He had plenty of stone tools. And then he also had like some really fluffy... Fungi that was probably like for 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 starting the fire for getting it going, huh. and so probably something like this. I mean, there's been work done looking at what's called usware or or marks from if you were to strike a piece of that that pyrite against a stone tool, would it leave a mark, gouge or a scratch? Or if you were doing this on a stone tool. Do you see marks on like not the business cutting edge, right? And so mm-hmm. there's been some work done on what are called Acheulean hand axes or bifaces. And they're these lovely, very symmetrical teardrop shaped or, or pear shaped stone tools that were the, were the height of, of technology mm-hmm. at the time. And if you look on not the cutting edge in, in a few places, it looks like there might have been kind of like the middle of it was scratched with with pyrite. Okay, so if this Franch ancient axe sounds familiar, we touched on them in the Atlatl episode, and they appeared about one and a half million years ago, and they were in fashion for about a million years. Archaeologists think that these really simple teardrop-shaped whackers may have played a role in seducing your hairy great-great-great-great-great-grandparents nearly half a million years ago, according to papers like the 1999 study, Hand Axes, Products of Sexual Selection, which was published in the journal Antiquity. So some of these Acheulean stone axes are carved in a way to feature a fossil right in the center of the axe, pretty much like an ornamental choice, like a bedazzling of some kind. And some axes are so large and unwieldy, they seem to defy any utilitarian function, like a Hummer with expensive rims in the middle of New York City. So like a flashy car, anthropologists think that these hand axes could have signaled viability as a partner, like this person must have resources and skill, cognitive ability if they're nap and rock so well, pretty okay eyeballs, you know, that function, leading a mate to think that's a sweet axe and I would definitely like to do the nasty with you. So fast forward to now, when horny human apes wear Axe body spray and still offer up very carefully faceted rocks as proof of their value as a mate. I mean, have we really even changed that much? And isn't that cute and kind of gross? But yes, from these stones roll in matchmaking to matchmaking. Part of the problem is that pyrite is not really that stable of a mineral over a great time periods. And so it can break down. And so there's not, to my knowledge, been an instance of, from, from the Paleolithic, of, again, the, these lovely hand axes being found with, with pyrite chunks. But it's, that's, that's kind of one of the, the operating 
you know, hy- hypotheses of, of what what could have been the, the source of heat. Yeah, they weren't going to REI and just getting some waterproof matches. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but what about fire and how it changed the way we evolved? Like, did we develop bigger brains because we started cooking meat? That's that's certainly one of the hypotheses, yeah. So th- it, this has been argued that going back to the, the, the species of, of early humans called Homo erectus, that at like 1.8 million years ago, suddenly our brains started, and again, by R, I, I realize I've called myself a Homo erectus there. But uh-huh. I, I, one, one thing you'll find with uh, that I always have to tell my students is that if I'm talking about Homo erectus or Neanderthals or Denisovans, they're all people to me. So mm-hmm. Neand- Neanderthals are, are people too, I tell them. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that that our direct ancestors, these Homo erectus, that that the brains got larger, and again, none of the soft bits have been preserved, right? So when we're saying brains got larger, we're looking at the size of inside the skull. Mm-hmm. And if some of the people who study bones in in much greater detail than I ever have, you know, have have suggested that. You know, there's also some structural indications that maybe the intestinal system got a, a, a bit different as well. And so the hypothesis was that this change seemed to correlate perhaps with or a, a potential mechanism for it was the use of fire to cook. There was a book that came out uh, a few years ago that pushed where a, a primate specialist had hypothesized that fire was even responsible for shifting our even deeper time ancestors back to to being daytime um, instead of nocturnal, mm-hmm. uh, that we were diurnal instead. And, and it kind of expanded our day and it had an effect on the melatonin in our brains and so forth. And again, it's an interesting idea. I don't think I buy it in terms of the mechanisms, but the main thing is, is that it shifts fire so far back that there's really no way to, to even test um, whether we were using fire then. It was, it was just kind of an explanation of now, maybe fire was responsible for us becoming diurnal. But it's so far back, nobody really knows. Because piecing together our history is really like the murkiest prequel of the Hangover film franchise, but with, I guess, more dried mud and some isotope tracing. Still some tigers, though. It can be a campfire story. Uh, that's uh-huh. absolutely what you have. There's ideas about the the social lives of early humans. And so there was a study that came out, again, several years ago by a, a famous anthropologist, Polly Wiesner, who had spent a lot of time among the San people in the African bush. So talking about N- Namibia uh, and Botswana and so forth. And these are people who, to some extent, still practice hunting and gathering today. And she observed that when they were gathered around a fire during the day, it was talk about business and you know subsistence and that sort of thing. But when there was a fire at night, that's when they were shooting the shit and just socializing, right? <laughs> and, wow. And again, that's a really interesting idea, but we're also, we have to be very, very careful when we're extrapolating from, from modern people who are just as modern as you and I, mm-hmm. <laughs> to human ancestors. You know, we can't suggest that what hunter-gatherers operating in a modern world are somehow a, a snapshot of the distant past. Right. If it's inspiring us to, to think about these things, that's great. Have researchers looked into like oxytocin levels at all while you're looking at a campfire? Is there something that is comforting 
innately to us, even though fire is dangerous? I don't know about that specifically. That's that's a really good question. But yeah, no, I, I'd agree there is that kind of satisfaction of it as well. Is that something like inherently biological and, and controlled by hormones is a really good question? Or if it's if it's something we're essentially conditioned to do, you know, would a baby who hasn't been raised, you know, within around campfires find this discomforting or, or terrifying? Okay, so if you would like some science to explain why you love campfires, I will point you toward the 2014 paper, Hearth and Campfire Influences on Arterial Blood Pressure, Defraying the Costs of the Social Brain Through Fireside Relaxation, which explains, quote, fires involve flickering light, crackling sounds, warmth, and a distinctive smell. For early humans, fire likely extended the day, provided heat, helped with hunting, warded off predators and insects, illuminated dark places, and facilitated cooking. Campfires also may have provided social nexus and relaxation effects that could have enhanced pro-social behavior, end quote. So this study took 226 subjects and measured their blood pressure. And then they randomly put some people in front of a control image while others got video of a campfire with the sound down, and other subjects got the full pop and crackle treatment too. So what happened? Researchers found consistent blood pressure decreases in the fire with sound folks, particularly with a longer duration of gazing at the video. And on my website, I have linked to YouTube that offers 12 hours of free Yule log action. So you can relax without worrying about a forest fire or having your hair smell like beef jerky. What about the importance of cooking food and avoiding parasites? At some point, did we learn how to boil water? Or how has mm -hmm. fire contributed to our actual living longer? Yeah, no, that's a great question that there is some evidence for boiling as being in kind of like pits in the ground being more of the first instance of cooking in like a pot you know, over a campfire. Because again, that's a very recent innovation. In terms of living longer, I mean, in a certain way, evolution doesn't care about it that much. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, They're like, you make babies or not? Okay, get out of here. You're done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, so for Neanderthal, you and I are, you know, of a good so old, old age. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, we're fossils. Can you imagine? They're like, what? Yeah, Gray I, hair? What is it? <laughs> yeah, I did have to explain this like just to my students a, a week or two ago when I, I showed them um, replica Neanderthal bones from an old man who was <sighs> probably around, you know, 45, right? Ah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so on, on, a certain, on a certain way, it doesn't matter on in terms of living longer. But even in terms of like, you know, pest control or something like that in a cave. If you're trying to avoid like getting bit by a bat, you could potentially use fire as a way to to, to clear out bats and mice or something like that from from a cave or, or or something like that. So there certainly are potential health aspects that deep in the past that using fire as a tool could could have assisted with. Do I think that humans figured out like if you boil water, it gets rid of the germs? No, I, I don't I don't think that was at all on on anyone's minds. What about your field work? What does that look like? And are you ever gathered around a campfire while you're doing research on pyrotechnology? 
in Armenia, there's definitely a celebration is is usually marked with what's called uh, horovats, which is 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 like a pit barbecue. So that anytime there's there's a good reason to celebrate, whether it's the end of the season or it's Tuesday or just whatever, <laughs> um, you know, it, it involves a big coal pit and cooking meat over it. So definitely there's there's that aspect involved in it. What field work can be like, it depends. We, we kind of move site to site in, in different years. Sometimes it means spending a month in an Armenian mountain village that's literally the end of the road and has the most spectacular night skies you can imagine. And we have people from all over the world who are specialists in various components. So maybe I'm trying to analyze the stone tools and figure out where they came from while someone else is looking at the tiny mammal bones that might have burrowed into the site and died. Uh, mm-hmm. Other people are looking at the sediments. Other people are are spending all their time digging. Other people are doing all the logistics and so forth. So it's a big team that that sometimes you can have six different languages being spoken on and, and you might need to go through two or three people to to get the right word out from one language to another. You have to get along with, with people that you're going to hang out with for, 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 for several weeks. I'm interested in where potential sources of, of, of raw stone might have come from as a way to start tracing how people were moving across the landscape. How do you even find those sites? Because I feel like I could just go on a hike right over an old, say, campfire site or stone tool building site and just not even know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes sites are just visible on the surface. And it doesn't mean necessarily that they've always been exposed on the surface. They could have been unburied as material erodes away, whether by water or just by wind, especially in a desert. Other times, if we are looking for very old sites, we try to find exposures on the landscape where we know that they are old. So this is one of the advantages of working in Armenia is that there are a lot of volcanoes there. Whoa. So Armenia is it's twice the size of Connecticut, but has 500 volcanoes. What? Which, yeah, yeah. Um, that have oh erupted. my God, Armenia. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, they're not, they're not all active, but, but, but oh, they still. have erupted throughout the time periods we're interested in. Yeah, I, I tell my students, imagine Connecticut, but with 250 volcanoes. Bananas. Right. So we get these lava flows all over the place, and they've also trapped other sediments between them. And so if we can date the lava flows, which is fairly straightforward for geologists to do, then we know what time period we're kind of looking at when we go to certain areas where it's exposed. And so what we like to do is especially go to these gorges that have been cut deep into all these past lava flows. And so we can literally see lava flows sandwiched on top of each other, and sometimes they have sediments between them. Sandwiches, I know. And obviously, if they're sandwiched between them, we know that they have to be older than the lava flow on top and younger than the lava flow beneath them. And so we can know that, okay, whatever is in here, hopefully there's stone tools in there. It's Mm -hmm. between this 440,000-year-old lava flow underneath and... Um, between a 200,000-year-old lava flow on top. <laughs> so the idea is, to is, is yeah, not to just go out and hopefully stumble across things, but the more you can find 
sediments or geological features that you know correspond to certain points in time, mm-hmm. the better. And that's and that's why there's exciting things happening in East Africa where there's this continental rift. And so when you're talking about all these interesting finds of, of human ancestors there, they're working in areas that they know the sediments are X number of, of years old rather than just you know, going out randomly. So rather than just hike all over the place and cross their fingers, pyrotechnologists go to sites that have rough timelines established and see what's there to get an estimate and then backtrack. So these are time capsules made of hardened lava, revealing how you came to be an animal who uses dental floss and drives a machine now. It's bananas. Is it ever weird for you that you're using things like microscopy and all kinds of like magnetic detection and in in a sense using a very controlled source of energy to try to find out how fire was used and how energy was was harnessed in the past? Yeah, all the time. All the time. So, I mean, I mean, I mean two examples of how this crosses your mind is Again, going out into the field, you know, at, at, for one of the flights to our media, I had like a, a middle seat, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm grumbling to myself, like, I've got a middle seat. This is going to stink for the rest of this flight. And then I'm like, I'm I'm talking about which seat in a flying machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to go. <laughs> to take my x-ray gun over the ocean <laughs> to go study people that lived in caves. Yeah. <laughs> Another time kind of occurs how just absurd this is, 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 is again, I, I work at Yale. So we get these email announcements of all the fantastic things being done on campus. And so there'll be like an announcement of like new, some new quantum computing advance at Yale or some modeling of, of COVID vaccine stuff. And I'm like, I study dead people's trash, you know? <laughs> but archaeologists really are expert trash diggers, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's usually what we're talking about is, is the trash that, that people leave behind mm-hmm. and how that represents what was done. I mean, you're trying to figure out from trash that has survived and has potentially been moved around by all sorts of geological and natural forces and animals picking through it and all that sort of stuff. What were people doing in the past? Mm-hmm. Over all of your research, do people ever ask you, what is the best way to construct a fire? Is it leaning everything together in a triangle shape or is it like stacking like a log cabin? Yeah, see, everyone everyone expects me at the party to be like the fire tender, right? Uh-huh, so, yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh, I'll keep an eye on the fire pit. Um, and, and naturally I, I just usually like pass it off to my kids. Like, yeah, just poke, poke at it a bit. <laughs> Dr. Fire. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah I've or, got an apprentice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or I'll occasionally say like, you know, I should really have, you know, some sort of really cool firing pit in the backyard or something like that. And my wife will be like, why don't you, let's get the house painted first. Yeah. Like, finish that. Finish that job before you start building a kiln in the backyard or something right. like that. Um, can I fire away with a lot of questions from a lighting round? Yes, please from do. From listeners? Okay. Oh, we have so many questions. Okay. And just to follow up, what kind of fire you make depends on what you're doing. For long-lasting campfires, the log cabin method might be the best. But for cooking on skewers, roasting stuff on a stick, you might want to lean logs into each other. But either way, make sure you're observing 
forest ranger cautions and that you are extinguishing things well before you leave. So listen to the fire ecology episodes for more on that. And before your questions, let's shower a worthy cause with our advertising dollars. So Ellery asked that a donation be made to the armenianfund.org, which does all kinds of humanitarian aid and infrastructure and sustainability projects and covers health and medical needs in Armenia. And that donation was made possible by sponsors. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy to use payment tools. So checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, Therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids 
Pirates can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. You know what's essential to science? It's not a lab coat. It's skepticism. You know me. I'm down rabbit holes. I'm looking at charts. I'm checking conflicts of interest at the bottom of published papers. And this is helpful because it means I don't buy stuff I don't need. And if you're one of me that can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from like a mile away and you read labels like it's your job, congrats. You're a skeptic. One brand of vitamins that is literally made for us is called Ritual. It's a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. They have clinically backed essential for women 18 plus. It has high quality, traceable ingredients. They're in clean, bioavailable forms. They're also a certified B Corp, female founded. Just today, one of my powerhouse friends was like, "Ah, found out I'm vitamin D deficient. I was like, yo, ritual, dude. When I forget my multivitamins, there's much less pep in my step. I have noticed. They're also very beautiful. They look like tiny lava lamps with little tiny beads in them. There's actually a scientific reason for this, but I got to wrap it up. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Get that D. Okay, your burning questions. Um, Gwyneth Greco wants to know, have any other animals outside of primates developed the ability to create fire? No, no, we don't have any instances of fire creators. We, you did have, I think with either, uh, I think it was when you had Gavin Jones on that you were talked about the Australian hawks that can spread yes, fire. Yes. Again, more on this in the fire ecology episode and in Karina Newsom's wildlife ecology episodes because arson birds. Someone needs to make some twin movies about them. And and use it kind of for hunting. But yeah, producing fire, no. And that's been one of the ways that we've kind of conceptualized this as something uniquely human, right? So mm-hmm. if you go back to like the 1940s, you'll see the, you know, the archaeology books titled like Man the Hunter. Mm-hmm. And obviously other animals hunt. And then it became man, again, you know, humankind, not man, but humankind, the 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 tool user. And then mm-hmm. we realized like octopi can use tools and crows can mm-hmm. use tools. And so, well, now we're, we're the tool maker. But getting very, very <laughs> specific. And, and so, but one thing that is still unique to, to our species is, is fire production. There is a very good short story written by sci-fi slash fantasy writer Terry Bisson called Bears Discover Fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's it's like how screwed humans are when when bears discover how to make fire. But yeah, so far we're the only fire producers, and really, with like the very little exception of those hawks mm-hmm. in Australia, the only real documented instance of of fire users outside of like training chimps to 
smoke cigarettes and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. That's not okay. (laughs) Well, Ryan Fisher, a patron, wrote in uh, and said, if you haven't yet read the sci-fi short story, Bears Discover Fire. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Ryan Fisher's on on that tip. On Um, point, Ryan. Yes. Avon wrote in, what's the best way to start a fire? Doritos, dryer lint. What historically did people use as kindling you you mentioned a fluffy fungus yeah yeah so any sort of any sort of like light fluffy like wooded plant material or something like that will will start because again going back to your kind of elementary school the the three parts of fire you need you need a lot of the oxygen to to get to it mm-hmm. like we were saying with Atsi, it was it was kind of a this fluffy but seems to be a like a, a, a fungus that would start easily So in case you're ever in a survival situation, look for hoof fungus or a mushroom called King Alfred's Cakes, also known as cramp balls. They look like balls of coal or kind of like horse poop, but you got to really dry them out. Are you not hungry now? Incinerate your snacks. Doritos are a proven kindling. Just enough oil and dust to sustain your flames. Although, I don't know, flaming Cheetos seem like a natural contender. I don't know if anyone's ever gone down that road scientifically. But also, you could bring along some dryer lint. You can dig some lint out of your belly crevasse. Or some campers do take a few cotton pads and soak them in either petroleum jelly or hand sanitizer, which is mostly alcohol, and then boom, you just have lighter fluid in a pinch. Our ancestors would be so proud and also confused why we are burning food to make food. Um, Abigail Bishop wants to know, first time question asker, have there ever been any human civilizations that have not had fire? How do you research who didn't have something? Yeah, this has come up before because again, I kind of controversially referred to to humans as obligate fire users Mm -hmm. in one time. And someone did come back at me and said like, well, there was this one missionary or European explorer account on this one island. These people didn't have fire or something like that. And I think it's also been, you know, other people came back and, and said like, no, that that's a really dodgy account. Or probably what it meant was they just didn't start fire like on demand when the missionary demanded it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with that, like one really dodgy probably kind of racist account. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was, there, no, there, there's no real good evidence for human groups that have not had fire. There is a big debate when you start getting to, to like early humans of did, could Neanderthals start fire or were they just fire users, you know, and mm-hmm. that, you know, those people would argue that it took modern humans, us, to be able to be on demand fire users. But once you get to modern humans, we're, we're pretty much solidly in that technology. Aha. Well, let's talk caves. Chelsea McCann says, uh, this spillology cave exploring society that I belong to always told us to look up when in new caverns looking for smoke and soot spots on the roof. And if we found any, we called in the archaeoanthropology team because it was probably inhabited or visited by indigenous people. Can these soot spots be dated to find out how long ago the fire in them burned? So the soot potentially, so those probably have, the soot probably has carbon in it. And so if we are talking within, so if your, your listeners in, in the United States or in the Americas, then radiocarbon dating works fine because radiocarbon dating is good back to 40 or 50,000 years ago. So any archaeological sites that again, we, we know of and are uncontroversial in, in the Americas, radiocarbon dating will work. 
If you're like, I'm no anthropologist, when was that? Well, scientists think folks crossed the land bridge from Siberia to the Alaska area now in the Stone Age, maybe 13,000 years ago, but that's been debated because older sites, one nearly 16,000 years old, another in central Mexico, dating back 33,000 years, have been discovered. But my point is, this did not happen in 1492. Nobody discovered shit that year. This land had been populated for millennia. Rebecca Weinsettel wants to know if there is a link between humans making campfires and domesticating dogs. Is that a thing? That It's kind of a thing. <laughs> so, yeah, dog domestication has been, again, one of these interesting issues of when it happened and was it something that only modern humans uh, did and it maybe gave them an advantage over Neanderthals and so forth. We're probably into enough of kind of like that fuzzy range of how well sites are dated to be able to know that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, the only thing I can directly speak to in terms of the, the sites where I worked with, with my fantastic colleagues is is at one of them at an upper paleolithic site so this is just a fancy way of saying making stone tools that modern humans make just before the last ice age there was a wolf skull recovered and it didn't have any of the morphology of domestication yet see a wolf's dorsal skull crest which acts as an anchor point for its gnashing jaw muscles or the bulbous foreheads of Shih Tzu mixes, like my dog Gremlin. Her skull probably looks like a softball and an anglerfish made it. But yes, wolves, not dogs. You can see the Lupinology episode for more on that. There is hearths inside this, you know, the, the archaeology word for campfires in, inside the cave. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, a wolf presence, but that, but not domesticated. This is especially hard to investigate because in Certain places, wolves and, and humans, early humans are going to occupy a similar ecological niche and use caves. So it might be that in one season, Neanderthals or modern humans were there. And in another season, wolves were there using the cave too. So even if we found wolf bones or, or wolves that looked like they were starting to get domesticated, it can be hard to say that they were there concurrently with the earlier modern humans. Mm-hmm. Could have been just one after the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or alternating. You know, just every spring the the humans were there, every fall the wolves were there, or something like that. You don't want to be there at the same time as the wolves. They got sucked into the same timeshare presentation, and now archaeologists are like, I don't know who was here when, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah, same <laughs> thing with like bears or hyenas are a big thing, is that, you know, what's pulled into a cave by hyenas including sometimes like Neanderthals and modern and ancient humans can, can really get, get blurred. So Oof. sometimes a cave might've been occupied like for like overnight mm -hmm. by, by humans. Right. And so the time spans that we're dealing with compared to like the reality of how long a particular group might've been in, in a cave or, or an open campsite. Mm -hmm. One of those things we need to keep in mind of the vastly different time spans we're talking about. Oof. And do you have a few more minutes to answer a few more Absolutely. questions? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that it was so late. Literally, there was a marching band practicing across the street for like an hour and a half. So I was No, my, my, my students will tell you, I will just, I will just talk if you don't oh, stop Oh no, me. this is great because I have a couple more questions. Yeah, go okay. for it. As many as, as many as you want. Yay! Okay, so speaking of caves, Natasha Barsh asked, 
uh, I saw a video of an archaeologist showing how cave paintings were made with the use of firelight and shadows in mind. And there's another thing. Today we see cave art with electric lights, but the ancients saw it under flickering candlelight. And I think under the light of a flickering flame, it augments the animation effect. Um, is that flimflam or not? Are there any other ways that early civilizations may have used fire to create art? Oh, yeah, this is this is a great question. Yeah, I mean, pigments can change color when exposed to fire. So these kind of what's called ochre or these iron oxides. So, you know, they could be made more reddish or yellowish or blackish. So, you know, potentially the colors can change. Certainly there are a lot of cave paintings beyond where sunlight would would ever reach. And so certainly if if they were going to see what they were doing in there, it would have been either, you know, a handheld torch or hearth in the middle or something like that. So I mean, absolutely that's the light source that you you would have done that within. Now, you know, were they taking this to the level of, you know, Plato's analogy of the cave shadows? I I don't, you know, that's maybe not, but certainly you know, that's the if that's the light source compared to like, you know, the headlamp of a of a spelunker or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, it it's worth, you know, interpreting it in those sorts of that sort of way. And and also there are minerals that can can sparkle and stuff like that. So that, you know, engage in, in light and you know, sparkling as micas can can shimmer and stuff like that. So certainly interplay with, with light. You know that that w- I would imagine that would be an important aspect of of what they're doing if they're that deep into a cave. Mm-hmm. I feel like that goes along with one question from Davis Bourne that just says, "Why does the person across from you always look so attractive?" I guess everything's just prettier in firelight, or or the carbon monoxide. One of yeah, <laughs> that's a good, good point. Was that ever an issue? Potentially. Mm-hmm. Probably they were they were okay. We're, again, we're not talking about large groups necessarily, mm-hmm. um, especially with Neanderthals. Okay, this next one was asked by Coral Taylor, Lauren King, and Nicodemus Cueller. Well, a few people asked about have fire will travel, and Coral Taylor said, "I've read that earlier humans would have a fire starter kit, often including a live ember or coal. How do they keep a live ember on their person?" without burning themselves or their items, but not putting it out. And Lauren King wants to hear about people have transported fire, how communities have transported fire throughout the ages. And Nicodemus Coelar asked if the advent of fire usage coincided with the expansion of people into areas previously less habitable. Were we on the move because of fire? Okay, so yeah, let's, let's take the first with carrying fire. Yes, there that seems to have been a practice that we can see um, certainly among native peoples of the Americas, when you know, Europeans first encountered them is being essentially in like a, a wooden carved, you know, wooden container, again, having some sort of slow burning ember that, you know, had just enough oxygen to, to keep going, but not so much that it's going to flare up and <laughs> burn everything. So mm-hmm. certainly like carrying of coals, you know, think of just kind of a, a slow, slow burn of, of charcoal, just being able to be carried in some sort of container or gourd or something like that. Or as the Pakuni people, part of the Blackfoot Confederacy of the Western Plains, devised a buffalo horn expertly stuffed with a genius parfait of moss, hardwood, 
softwood, and rawhide that held fire to take from one camp to the next as a symbol of home and continuity. So I will link a video about it on my website as Elder Marvin Weatherwax explains it. Way better than my travel candle in a weird hotel room. But it's a similar sentiment, perhaps. So that certainly there's definitely evidence amongst modern humans of, of carrying embers around. Absolutely. And then the, the other question was, is did it make uh, areas more inhabitable? And, and again, absolutely, I would say. This is one of the reasons that fire use can be inferred in some areas, because we're also talking not just about space, but th th this is deep time. So we're talking multiple, multiple ice ages, right? So we tend to think of like the ice age 15,000-ish, 20,000-ish years ago, but there are multiple, multiple glacial cycles. And so especially in Europe, Neanderthals had to had to survive all of these glacial periods. It's one of the reasons we think that they probably at the very least had like furs for blankets or something like that, and perhaps even basic clothing mm -hmm. is to be able to, to survive in these, these would otherwise be uninhabitable in terms of cold mm -hmm. areas. It does, you know, pose the challenge again, if you're, you're up in a mountainous area during an ice age, you have to worry about your fuel source as well. It, you know, wood is, is heavy. Yeah. So you can't move into an area where it's cold and there's no wood around to burn or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be like driving your car somewhere without a gas station or something. Yeah, exactly. So you have there's trade-offs to doing it. So the great thing about fire is it keeps you warm mm -hmm. and you know safe to some extent and and whatnot. But it's also a lot of work <laughs> to go get the wood and and chop it up as best you can and and then you know get the fire going. And so in the past, one would also you know kind of play play that in in mind um, mm -hmm. of what's what's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that are not easy, Madeline wants to know, how the heck do people walk through fire? I don't imagine either one of us know anything about that, though, right? Well, see, this is where the physics uh, undergrad degree comes in handy. So, <laughs> so we actually we actually learned this in physics class. So, oh, my God. Basically, what's happening is, I hate to say it, but your feet are sweaty, especially if you are very nervous about having to walk across oh. hot coals. Uh -huh. And so literally what's happening is the sweat on your feet is turning into a gas and it's hitting the hot coals. And you've got this microscopic layer of vaporized sweat, basically oh. steam that's that's between you and the fire. Oh my gosh. How fast do you have to walk? Do you have to just run across it? That's what it always seems like in the movies. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know from personal experience. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to drag you into the deep rabbit hole slash fire pit of my research on Tony Robbins seminars that involve walking through hot coals as a way to change your mindset on what's possible. But I will tell you that thousands of people have walked over glowing embers in parking lots of convention centers as he bellows into a headset mic about destiny. And no, he didn't invent this. It's a religious practice in some parts of the world like Singapore. And yes, Sometimes scores of people have minor burns on their feet at his Unleash the Power Within events, and it seems they're becoming more common as time goes on because people stop to take selfies as they firewalk, and that really botches the physics of it. But I will tell you, I could not stop myself from watching Oprah stomp herself over a track of fire nuggets through sheer will and affirmations. But I'm going to hand it to Tony for the addition of a moist patch of lawn that he starts folks on. 
Get up on the grass first. Okay. I want you to make your move as strong as you've ever been in your life. I want you to scream yes. I want you to do it three times. Your eyes stay up. You storm the grass. Yes. Yes. Make your move scream yes. As hard and strong as you can. That's it. That's it. You got it. Hey, man. If coals lead to goals, you do you. But just, you gotta step on the wet grass first. Um, Mike Monikowski wants to know, what ancient fire starting method surprised you? For me, it was the fire piston. I don't even know what a fire piston is. But anything surprise you? Um, I will... I, I, I'll say, I mean, when I first heard about the pyrite, I was suspicious. Because, again, I... You know, going as a you know a camper as a kid, there was we we always had the flint and steel or or something like that, and I didn't know if it would it would work. My skeptical hat went on there. But you'll hear about fire starting ideas, but you know most are like from like really dodgy accounts and historical sources or something mm-hmm. like that. I haven't encountered anything yet that <laughs> that is mm-hmm. that has made me just slack jawed. How about the invention of? S'mores. Several of you patrons, Justin So, Maggie Kinney, Jess Swan, Schmitty Thompson, wanted to know, are they a gift from the gods to apologize for periods and farts and stuff? No. I looked into it and s'mores were likely invented by Loretta Scott Crew in the first ever recipe published in 1927 in a recreational guide titled, quote, Tramping and Trailing with the Girl Scouts. Also, you should know that graham crackers were invented by Sylvester Graham, a devoutly religious Presbyterian who thought that eating vegetables and bland wheat germ crackers was the best way to stop being so fucking horny. So little did he know that a century later, fireside s'more roasting parties would rise in popularity as places to meet someone to flirt with. So thank a loner with a boner for your favorite camp witch. Speaking of scrumptious vittles, patron Ethan Patone asks, what's the tastiest thing you have roasted over a campfire? And Belint Novak asked, why toasted things are the best things? And Anna Dewiger asks, what's the most unique food you've ever roasted over a campfire? Um, Allison D wants to know if you have any ancient recipes that you have heard of, of cooking over fire that have stuck with you. And why is the Malliard reaction so delicious? I would say something that has has stuck with me, part, again, partly because it did not sound terribly appealing, was, again, one of these instances where it, it seems like there's essentially kind of like a bowl-shaped depression carved out of the, the ground. It was maybe lined with some sort of clay substance. And then, then water was boiled in it to help get the marrow in the bones to kind of ooze out. And, you know, I it, I picture this as some sort of like ancient, horrible jello concoction. <laughs> Just meat jello. Just meat jello. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that that has stuck with me as yeah. as 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 not. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's when you occasionally people are, you know, fantasize about, oh, I wish I was a caveman. And I'm like, no. No, gritty, I've seen, gritty meat jello. I've seen, I've seen what they do. Yeah, <laughs> like you're enjoy your enjoy your flight in the middle seat, all the more. Yeah, <laughs> knowing I mean, if they served you if they served you gritty sandy meat jello on the flight, it would be people would be none too pleased. I imagine. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the bones at some of these sites are just really, really broken up to get at at that marrow. You know, it was mm-hmm. a really important food food source and really, really. I, I don't know if it was desirable in the past. It perhaps an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, no, I not not high on my list of of recipes. Bone marrow, of course, is full of collagen and fats that can be great for us. We have it as bone broth, pho, ramen stock, soup. It's delicious sand and worms in any of the above and sipping it with my cupped, filthy hands, eh, I'll pass. Let's steer the time machine to an orgy in disco-era Miami instead. Huh? Carla Drez asked, what is an often overseen, not many know about type of effect that fire has had on humans? You have to think about even like, um, you know, as, as a means of communication across the landscape with smoke signals around the world and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, certainly a way to increase visibility on the landscape, especially if you think about potentially how far apart small groups of hunter-gatherers would have been and, and how infrequently have they encountered each other. And so, I mean, that's of interest to me because that's, you know, kind of the the ultimate sort of questions, you know, that I'm looking at is when you have an innovation with whether it's stone tool technology, whether it's fire technology, how would that sort of knowledge have spread from one group to another? And and, mm-hmm. and, and increasing your visibility on the landscape certainly would have been, you know, one way to, to more frequently encounter other groups. What were people saying with smoke signals, you ask? I asked the internet and billowing fires were used by cultures all over the world. They still are. You just pop some green wood on a fire to send a white puff into the sky. And while different configurations had different meanings between groups, the general smoke signal parlance is one puff meant attention, two meant all is well, thumbs up, and three puffs of smoke or three fires in a line meant danger, trouble, someone please come and help me. Zero puffs communicates, shoot, I ran out of wood. Can you bring some more wood? Probably. I mean, it's the first text message I'm sure ever sent. Just yeah. Like- I mean, Well, I mean, think about, you know, again, you're living in a small group, probably just like your extended family. And mm-hmm. it's like the holidays all the time. <sighs> <laughs> you don't see many other people that often. You definitely want to you know, find someone else to to date and go off and have babies with than, you know, the group, this group that you're constantly with. You're just desperate to find other people uh, and spread your genes around to not your family. Yes, yes. And hopefully someone who has a better recipe than, than, <laughs> than meat jello. Meat, meat jello, yeah. Gritty, gritty meat jello. Um, Amy Shuey, Ashley Butcher, and Ivalee Sanchez all want to know if you employ the saying, I hate white rabbits. Does that ring a bell to you at all? No. Ah, even better. Well, consider this your most valuable archaeological yes. yeah, tool. Teach me, teach me. What, what, what is it? What is it? Apparently, <laughs> if smoke from a campfire keeps blowing in your face and you say aloud, I hate white rabbits to stop the smoke it will stop the smoke from blowing in your direction. I didn't know about it either, but apparently if smoke gets in your eyes, just say aloud, I hate white rabbits. Anyone out there at a campfire, you now know. You have you have a fix for that. Or wear goggles, I imagine. P.S. I looked into this, and this tradition may have started with First Nation stories about smoke resembling white rabbits. But if this is a false legend, 
I'm sorry. I tried my best. No bunny get mad at me. Okay. I have now been doomed to my kids <laughs> trying this incessantly at the next sure. fire that, that we are exposed to. So so thanks. You're welks. You're welks. And speaking of things uh, that are not the best, smoke getting in your eyes, but as a pyrotechnologist, as a card-carrying Yale researcher who can have a business card, this pyrotechnologist, what thing sucks the most about what you do? What is the hardest part of your job? What is the most vexing? Anything you don't like? Anything I don't like. I mean, it's it's one of one of the challenges in you know increasingly scientific archaeology and anthropology is you, know, you do have to go to deans and explain like <laughs> we're running science labs here, and when they see that they're, they've been extraordinarily receptive and supportive, but there is that kind of initial reaction of like, oh, you're an archaeologist, you need pencils. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, I need, you know, this like x-ray gun, two of them. But what's, what's been good is, is when you can get these, this sort of technology in people's hands, suddenly they realize like, oh, of course. So, you know, if you can bring, again, the nice thing about analytical tools that, that we can bring into the field with us, it means we can also carry them to, you know, the Dean's office and say like, here, try analyzing this stone tool. Mm-hmm. And and by the end, they're like, this is so cool. Absolutely, you need this. So yeah, so sometimes, you know, running an increasingly scientific field in, in what's traditionally envisioned as a social science instead of a STEM field is probably maybe the biggest challenge of this job, but not insurmountable. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun challenge and um, people have been really receptive to it. What about the best? What do you love the most about being a pyrotechnologist? I have great students. They keep me on my toes. I always want to do really well by these really smart people who are always bringing me kind of new challenges or questions. And, you know, I never quite know what aspect of, of ancient technology some student is is going to, to latch onto and want help with. So uh, it might be that now, a student walks in and like, I want to study Shang Dynasty bronzes. And I'll be mm-hmm. like, great, I know nothing about that. But my job is not to know everything. It's to not know things and then figure out how to answer it. And so, uh-huh. you know, then stepping the students through that process of like, here's how we can go about that that process to figure this out is is a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. Oh, and you really are like a detective. Everything's a mystery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sherlock Holmes, you know, he had the luxury of things happening days or weeks in advance. We've got to put a layer of hundreds of thousands of years on top of that and deal with, you know, it might be this or that. But but yeah, I mean, every little bit of, of evidence, we're like ancient CSI. Usually, you know, our holographic tables don't work as well as on TV. But... <laughs> you got to get more funding, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ask dusty people your burning questions, because from what I can tell, they they really do like being grilled. So to learn more about Ellery's work, his website and his social media is linked in the show notes. So is the armenianfund.org. There's way more links and info up at aliward.com slash ologies slash pyrotechnology. That is linked in the show notes. You can follow ologies at ologies on Twitter or Instagram. I am Ali Ward with one L on both. 
Ologies merch, everything from hats and totes to masks is available at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltes and Bonnie Dutch for managing that. They host the comedy podcast, You Are That. Thank you, Aaron Talbert for managing the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Thank you, Emily White of The Wordery for making transcripts available on our website for free alongside bleeped episodes. Thank you, Caleb Patton for bleeping. Thank you, Kelly Dwyer for making alleywar.com. Thank you, Susan Hale and Noel Dilworth for all the ologies behind the scenes work. Thanks, Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas and Stephen Ray Morris for helping with the smallogies episodes and lead editor, Jared Sleeper, for putting it all together late into the night as I record this from a remote Canadian hotel on a shoot. Uh, Nick Thorburn wrote the theme music. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. And this morning on my flight to Canada, I was eating these really good like some kind of gluten-free chocolate coconut like oat granola bars and they were so tasty and I I don't know what I was thinking but I offered the guy next to me one of them like they weren't even individually wrapped and I just like had a bag of them and I was like and he was like why no and I was like I just thought they're so good and then I felt crazy and I had to sit there for like two hours like why did I offer this guy who wasn't even looking in my direction, one of these weird oat balls. Why did I think that was a good idea? But once I asked a passenger next to me for a Sour Patch Kid, and he gave me the whole rest of the bag, saying I was doing him a favor, and I cherished them. So I don't know. You never know. Anyway, bye-bye. Hackadermatology, homeology, cryptozoology.